Now, Father, as we come to you this first Lord's Day of the new year, 2011, we want to begin this year together by giving you the worship that you are due. Because you, O Lord, are God. And besides you, there is none other. You are God, and there is no one like you. And we praise you, and we give you glory. And we magnify your glory, and we desire to have your glory magnified and reflected through our lives, wherever we are, in every circumstance, in every event, so that Jesus Christ will be praised to the glory of the Father. And so we ask you, Father, now to speak to us through your word and remind us of what our purpose is for existence in this world. Remind us at the beginning of the year, reset our lives, O Father, that we would clearly see today and tomorrow and the next day and the day after that why we have breath, why we have eyes that see and ears that hear and hands and feet that can move why we've been placed in, in circumstances of influence where we can point others to Christ. And, O oh, Father, fill us with a renewed zeal and resolution to be faithful to you with it this year, all to the praise of your glorious grace and for our everlasting joy. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles with me to the passage that Brent read earlier and that is 1 Peter chapter 2. Hebrews, James, Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. The first Lord's Day of the year is always an important time for us. Not only as individuals, but as a church family as well. The first days of a new year just seem appropriate as a time for us to reflect upon our lives and evaluate how we're progressing and uh, what are we accomplishing? And um, how should we resolve to change? I don't know about you, but these are the thoughts that run through my mind every year about this time. There's nothing wrong with making New Year's resolutions. In fact, if we have any interest at all in bettering ourselves and making ourselves more like Christ, then one of the most natural disciplines we can engage in is resolution. But before we can evaluate the direction and progress of our lives, we have to have a clear comprehension of what we're aiming for. Someone once said, if you aim at nothing, you will hit it every time. And it's just so important that we're not aiming at nothing. And one of the things that, that causes me some discouragement and gives me cause for prayer on behalf of certain individuals, is when I see, especially young people, who are aimless, they're kind of floating down the lazy river of life, they have no sense of purpose, they have no sense of understanding of why God created them, and so they kind of live in a meaningless existence, bouncing from one pleasure to another pleasure, hoping that somehow, someday, some way, there will arise out of nothingness meaning to life, and it doesn't happen. What kind of person do you desire to be? What has God created you to be and to do? Why do you exist? 
These are important questions because answering these questions is what gives meaning in life because the standard by which we measure our progress and our successes and failures is this, the answer to this question. Why are we here? Why did God bother to create us? Because without a clear understanding of who we are and why we exist, there is no standard against, we can, against which we can measure our lives. And we're just here. And maybe the evolutionists are right. And one of my concerns over the past several months has been that as we, as a church, move forward, we must be very careful not to drift away from a clear understanding of what God had in mind when he created this church. There are just some things that are core to us that everything else can be jettisoned. We don't need a building. I've seen that in the church around the world. We don't need a building. Buildings are nice. We don't need gifted singers and guitar players and piano players, keyboard players. As wonderful as that is, it's not essential. There are just some things that are a part of a local church that are, that are not essential and a very, very few things that are. And beloved, we have to be careful. I don't get a chance to visit other churches very often, but when I do, either personally or on rare occasions, I'll check out a church through the internet. And I visit the, the churches of good men who went to the same schools that I went to and I see what's going on in their churches and in their worship services, and I think, oh, God, no condemnation toward them, but don't let me slide in that direction. Don't let this church slide. Help us to be faithful to the basics, and if, if we don't have all the neat, fancy programs and the lighting and the instruments, so be it. Who cares? If we have your word, if we have prayer, if we have fellowship, if we have Christ, hallelujah, he's all we need. And he's the only thing that matters anyway. And faithfulness to him and fellowship to him and communion with him, these are the essentials of the Christian life. They are the essentials of the church. And everything else, even the other biblical things that Brent talked about this morning in Sunday school relative to the church, all of those things are designed to that end. They are not ends in themselves. A number of years ago, nearly four years ago, the elders sat down and hammered out a statement that we believe encapsulates the essence of the biblical teaching on this issue relative to our church because we thought rather than trying to remember a bunch of scriptures that we should all have memorized, but for the purpose of clarity and the ability to remind ourselves frequently and continually what we're here for so that we will be less likely to drift without somebody raising the alarm. And we came up with a statement that we think encapsulates the biblical teaching on this. And if you're new at Calvary Bible Church, uh, you don't know this, and what you're about to hear may freak you out a little bit when everybody says it, but that's okay. I, I, I was hoping it would be printed in the bulletin, and, and it wasn't there. So those of you who know it, I want you to say it with me. This is the purpose statement for Calvary Bible Church, and here it is. We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God in the joy of all peoples. I love that statement. 
I love it because it's not only, as I have found over these last several years, not only a wonderful and precise purpose statement for this church, but it is also a very clear and purposeful statement for me as an individual, as a husband, as a father. And I can look at this. It's not the totality of Scripture. It's not everything that God calls me to do, but it is the most important thing. It's like in Boy Scouts, all of my, my boys are scouts. Andy is an Eagle Scout. And one of the things they teach you in Boy Scouts is how to use a compass. You gotta know where true north is or you'll get lost. And I'm not a pilot. I know David Hornbrook is a pilot and others of you have flown as well. But I've learned over the years listening to them and other men who fly that if you want to get from point A to point B, even if it's a straight shot, it's not as easy as just revving up your engines, pointing your, your rudder, in, if that's the right term, in the right direction and getting up in the air and coming to your destination. Because there are all kinds of forces at work that if you are not aware of them, they will cause you to drift. I don't know if you've ever seen the videos of uh, the pilots down in South America. There's this airstrip where pilots of the big jumbo jet airliners have to go down there sometimes and practice landing with an amazing crosswind. And sometimes these, these... Planes that would normally be coming in straight like this are flying almost sideways. And at the last second before they touch the ground, they twist that plane and land it on all three points. It's an amazing thing to watch. But the point is they have to learn how to fight, how to fight the forces that are causing them to drift. And beloved, this happens to seminaries. Every good seminary the past 200 years um, You look back, and and I don't know of a one. Harvard was a seminary. Princeton was a seminary. Yale was a seminary. All of the original Ivy League schools were designed, were built, were established to train men to preach the Word of God. And yet the leadership of those institutions were not careful to watch their instruments, to keep their eye on the main thing so that they wouldn't drift. Texas Christian University... It's totally lost its bearings. And so have some other wonderful institutions that many of us have been affiliated with over the years. Beloved, when I look at this church and I think of what could happen if we allow ourselves to drift a little bit today and a little bit tomorrow and a little bit the next day, it causes my soul to shudder. We dare not. We dare not. And... Praise God, he is causing this little church to grow. Praise God for that. But if I've said it once, I'll say it a thousand more times, hopefully, before the Lord takes me from behind this pulpit. Growing big is not the main thing. It's a little blip on the screen that we need to be aware of because it may very well be the thing that causes us to drift. No, beloved, if you want to pray for something for the elders, number one, pray for our purity. And number two, pray for wisdom to see if we ever begin to drift away from the essentials of preaching the word and glorifying Christ through holy lives. 
So this is our purpose statement. We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God and the joy of all people. What I want to do this morning, and it seems appropriate, I was going to preach the message that I promised you on George Mueller. We'll do that next week because I think it's so important that we, we see this, and I'll explain why next week. But for this first week of the year, I think it's appropriate, and frankly, where we are as a church right now, I think essential that we remind ourselves where true north is. Why do we say that this is why we exist? Why did we form this statement the way it is? And what I want to do is show you, many of you uh, are, are new to Calvary Bible Church. You have no idea. You just heard that statement recited by the congregation, and you think, wow, that was kind of weird or that was kind of cool. Where did that come from? I'm going to answer that question for you this morning. And those of you who have been around here for three years or more, no. But I don't know about you, I know me, I need to be refreshed on this, especially now, the beginning of a new year. And so what I want you to see is that there are no wasted words in this statement. Every one of them, every phrase was carefully crafted to reflect what we believe are the essential biblical truths that identify what our primary purpose of existence is. And so I want to walk you through that today. And the very first thing I want us to do is look at this passage I described to you earlier, 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2. And Brent read for us the essential verses here from which we, uh, upon which we've, we've grounded this statement. But I wanna, what I want to do first is, is kind of give you the context here. Here's the first phrase of our statement, just by way of reminder. We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Now, if this is the first time you've heard this, you're probably wondering, well, that kind of has a ring to it. That kind of sounds slick. Where did that come from? And, and I'm here to tell you, it didn't come from the elders. It came from the Holy Spirit, and not by personal revelation. He doesn't give us any personal revelation. Every truth that we get comes from this book. And so I want to show you that this comes ver from the very words of God. Now, Peter is writing to a persecuted church. He's writing to a church that's been under severe persecution. He's going to write two letters to them. And uh, the first phrase of our statement comes from this text. And the first phrase of our statement is extremely important for us because it, it clarifies, at least in part, and essentially the first part, what we are supposed to do as people, as individuals, as a church. And so let me ask before we get into this, dads, do you know what God has called you to do in your home and in your workplace? Do you know God's highest calling upon your life? And moms, both those of you who are at home with your children, many of you are homeschooling, and some of you who don't have children and are out working, do you realize, do you fully comprehend what it is that God has called you to do in the home? And children, yes, this message is for you too. Do you know what God wants you to do when you're sitting at the kitchen table having your English lesson or your spelling test or maybe you're sitting in school in class or maybe you're just sitting down getting ready to eat your Fruit Loops in the morning and the thought never occurs to you that God has a plan for how to eat your Fruit Loops? But he does. And Peter makes it clear for us right here in this text. 
Let's start with verse 4. This is such a crucial text for us. The apostles' picture for us here is that of the new temple of the Lord. Not, not the eschatological temple, the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. That's not what he's talking about. This is a temple made by God himself, not of rock dug out of the earth, but of people who have rested all their hope for eternity upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We are living stones that are built upon the great living stone, the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. And so Peter paints this picture for us, beginning in verse 4. And, if you're following along with me, 1 Peter 2, 4, and coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I, that is God, lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. The cornerstone is a him. It is a person. It is a man. It is Christ. It is the precious cornerstone. It is a stone that is of exceeding precious value. We're not talking about a stone that is made out of concrete or granite. We're talking about a cornerstone that is made of God. It's made of God. And we, like living stones, are being built upon him for the purpose of creating a temple and a priesthood. Now the Jews who were listening to this or reading this would have understood this intuitively. I take it that Peter wrote this before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And therefore Herod's temple was still standing. The, the temple that Herod built for the Jews to replace the one that had been destroyed. Solomon's temple and then the temple that was built after the dispersion and to Babylon, that temple was destroyed. This temple was probably still standing when Peter wrote these words. And so people understood the temple. And we have a hard time understanding the temple. It doesn't make much sense to us. It seems like we're talking about church. And that's not what we're talking about. That's not what Peter is referring to. Peter is referring to that place that in the Old Testament, God told through Moses to Joshua that there would be a place where God would put his name and he would place his name in this special place in a house called the temple. And in that house would be the very glory of God descended upon the Ark of the Covenant in the most of holy places in the uh, temple proper called the Holy of Holies behind the veil into which no one could enter except the high priest once a year and that with fear and trembling to present the blood of the sacrifice for the atonement of the sins of Israel. And it was this place that all of Israel understood was the centerpiece of their very existence. And it is where they came to worship because the presence of God was represented by this place. And so take the imagery. 
Now let me add one more dynamic. Um, you need to think back to Solomon's temple, the glory days, the big, the wonderful, the most majestic of the temples of Israel. When Solomon built his temple, he took the, the doors, the front doors, and he had the builders of the temple orient that building due east, which would, for us would be that way, due east. And he overlaid those temple doors with hammered gold. I mean, they, and they were huge, huge doors. You could see them from miles and miles away. Now, think of this. Let's say uh, the temple is here where our church is, and you live in East Fort Worth. Let's say you live kind of over in the Poly District. And one morning, your house is up on a hill, and you can kind of see across Fort Worth, and the sun rises, and the beams of the sun hit the temple. And what are you going to see? You're going to see glory. You're going to see these golden doors reflecting this radiant beams of light. And you're not going to be able to see any other structure around it by design. The one structure that would stand out to you would be the temple of the Lord. This is what Peter is referring to when he says that God is taking you as living stones, as individuals, and making you into this temple of God. Now, what's the point of that? I don't feel like a stone. I'm, I'm kind of probably softer than I ought to be. I don't feel like a stone. I'm not a stone. I'm not, he's not talking about physicality here. He's talking about spirituality. He's talking about who you are in his sight in terms of purpose. Our purpose is to stand in the world together as a church, as a body of believers, the church universal and the church local, both have the same purpose, and that is to stand, as it were, in the presence of the world, of the nations, of this community, in such a way that when people look at us, when they see me, they see something of the glory of God. That's why we were created. That's why God created us in his image. There are certain attributes of God that are communicable. That is, they can be imparted to us and have been by his grace. And through Christ, we now have had those attributes restored to us so that we can indeed portray the attributes of love and grace and mercy and kindness and gentleness and patience and all the other fruits of the Spirit, even the ones that aren't listed in Galatians chapter 5. And what's the purpose for that? It's not for us to enjoy. Those fruits are not for me to eat from my own life. It's not the peace that passes all understanding. We've talked about that. It's a different text. And the fruit of the Spirit it's peace between brothers and sisters who should be at war. It's love, loving other people even though they're unloving and maybe unlovable. Giving to them whatever you have that they need because God wants you to, that's love. And when people see that in our lives, they see something of the glory of God. And children, when people see you arguing and bickering, mom and dad, when your children see you arguing and getting after each other, 
and not treating each other with love and respect and honor, your children are learning what God is like. And you're teaching them about a false God who is selfish and angry and arrogant and demanding. In verses 7 and 8, he describes those who reject the cornerstone. These are the people who are not part of this temple, not part of this priesthood. Verse 7 says, this precious value, now this precious value, he's already told us what that is, it is this stone. It is this precious, huge precious gem that is Christ, who is the foundation, the cornerstone of this temple. And this precious value then is for you who believe. But to those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, he's quoting from the Old Testament here, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. Finally, in verse 9, then, he comes back to us, comparing us with those who will have no part in God's temple and do have no part in God's temple and will, in the end, be doomed to everlasting destruction. Verse 9, he explains why God chose to use the likes of us as choice stones for his spiritual house, the temple, as it were. And now we come to this verse, which is, really the foundation of the rest of our purpose statement. And it is verse 9. Here's a contrasting word, verse 9, first word. But, in contrast to those who reject the cornerstone, who are doomed to destruction, but you, you, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that, whenever you see so that, your eyes should perk up, your mind should wake up, you should think purpose statement. This is telling me purpose here. And in this case, it's the purpose for your existence. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why. You exist. That's why we were created. You see, it's not about us. We have such, in America and in the Metroplex, we have such a twisted view of the gospel. And Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Um, God loves you and he wants to make everything right. He wants you to be healed. He doesn't want you to suffer. Don't get me wrong, he heals. Oh my goodness, does he heal. He's promised to put your marriage back together and we can show you how. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel is this. All 
of your sin can be forgiven and you can become unshackled to your slavery, to sin. You don't have to live as an enemy of God and you don't have to live as a slave of sin anymore. And you can be in relationship to God as not just as an individual, but as part of a community of people who collectively are the very temple of God, committed to showing forth the glory of God no matter where they live and no matter what their circumstance. No matter what their circumstance. No matter what the circumstance. What is it that we've been called to do? We exist to proclaim the excellency of him who called us out of darkness and into his, notice the qualifier, not just light, marvelous light. It's a kind of light that to stand in it, when we reflect on how sinful we are, And we stand now in the light of God's glorious presence, not under condemnation, but forgiven and free. It is a marvelous, it's a marvelous light. It is a glorious light. It is a thing that we treasure more than anything else in the world. It is marvelous in our eyes when we are seeing clearly. In the Old Testament, the temple of the Lord and the priesthood and the sacrifices and everything related to it were established by God to set the glory of his own name on display for all the world to see and to wonder at and to glory in is all about God. God does not exist for us. We exist for him. God does not exist to make your company thrive or to make your business more profitable. We exist for him. And my job or lack thereof is for his glory. My health or my lack of health is for his glory. My relationships, whether they are secure or broken, are for his glory. We exist for him. And there is joy in living for him regardless of our circumstances. Today, the temple no longer exists. And so God's people are now endowed with the high privilege and huge responsibility of calling attention to the glory of God by the way we live. By the way we live. We who have found God's salvation in Christ now live as a kind of royal priesthood. Do you realize you're a priest? Children, do you you realize that you're little priests, if you know the Lord? You are a part of the royal priesthood, dedicated to proclaiming the excellencies of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you know what a priest is? Children, let let me just have your eyes up here for just a second. Let me explain to you what a priest is. You've seen the pictures of the priest. You've probably drawn pictures of the priest in the temple. You know what the point of the priesthood was? It was to have certain men who would stand between sinners and God. And these special people, these priests, these men who wore unusual clothing, 
They wore these white robes, and they had blue, and they had this, this fancy hat that they wore, and a sash over them, and, and they, they butchered animals, and they sacrificed them, and people would bring uh, bread, and they would stand before the altar of God, and they would wave it. It's called a wave offering. Um, and they would present all of these things to the Lord. You know what they were doing? They were the connecting point between sinful man and holy God. And their responsibility was to stand between sinful men and holy God and bring them together. Saying, as it were, to sinful men, do you realize how holy and glorious God is? He is a God of infinite glory, a God of infinite holiness, and he will not tolerate sin. And any sin that comes into his presence must be annihilated. There must be death for sin. However, God is also gracious and compassionate, and he will accept the death of another in your place. And so as a temporary atonement, There was the offering of bulls and goats, but it's the final, permanent, once for all sacrifice. There was the blood and body of Jesus Christ, the lamb without blemish, the sacrifice that was once for all good for eternity for all who would believe. You are now that priesthood. And so when you're sitting in your cubicle or you're walking around from hospital bed to hospital bed or when you're going from bathroom to bathroom kind of trying to clean up the house or or spelling test to math test or whatever it is, your job is to help the sinful people around you, including yourself, come into relationship and marvel at and delight in the glory of their God and to do it on his terms. You get to be a representative of God. That's why we exist. And that's really important because there's so many things in our lives that we allow into our lives that don't line up with that purpose. And some things we allow in our lives violate and destroy that purpose. And so while on the one hand we claim to belong to Christ, but our lives demonstrate we have no idea what that means because we live unholy lives. And Peter is telling these persecuted people, persecuted people, not talking about people who have a quiver in their liver or, you know, some disease or some... I mean, these are people who are on the run. They're being attacked. They're being brutalized. And it's going to get worse after Peter writes this. And he's telling them, it doesn't matter. Your circumstances don't matter. What matters is how you respond to your circumstances. Will you, in your circumstances, whether you're sitting at the breakfast table getting ready to eat your Fruit Loops, or whether you're staring in the face of someone who's, who's threatening to kill you if you don't deny Christ, Whatever your circumstances, will you fulfill your purpose to proclaim that Christ is excellent in all things? This is why God left us on earth, beloved. 
We've not been called to moralize our culture. We've not been left here to accumulate earthly riches and comforts and to make our lives easy. Until we die, God didn't leave us on earth so that we can make a name for ourselves or experience all the pleasures that Western society offers. No, he left us here simply to proclaim to the world that Christ is excellent above all things. Does your life say that? Does our church say that? Does your family say that to the people who know you? I love Psalm 8. It's one of my favorite psalms and yours too. And David looked into the heavens and saw the infinite blanket of stars and he said what we should say, O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name. How majestic, how glorious is your name. You want to know how to make an impact on the world even if you're not a gifted evangelist? The way we make an impact on the world is simply to view every circumstance as an opportunity to communicate to people that in your estimation, Christ is gloriously excellent. He's more excellent and more praiseworthy and more worthy and more to be treasured than anything the world has to offer. And sometimes that means you may have to decline that promotion because you know that God would be displeased if you took it. Sometimes you need to deny yourself that entertainment simply because you know that the Lord would not be pleased if you did that. We do this every time. Here's an easier one. Every time we, give, we see the glory of God and we give praise to God for it. I did this the other day. Me and Charlie went to see um, Melissa Ghost in the hospital. And she had a little baby laying there. I haven't been that close to a little bitty baby in a while. I got a feeling I'm going to be close to a lot more babies. I think a couple of weeks ago I said there were eight due and we've had two since then and now there are 11 due. I'm not sure how the math works out. But when you walk into a room like that and you look down at this little life hemming in your heart, you should say, glory, glory. You should verbalize it. Give glory to God. Let's pray. Let's thank God for this little life. When you have to explain a decision that you've made by saying, I've concluded that the Lord would be pleased if I did this or declined doing that. What are you doing? You're saying, God is more precious to me. Christ is more glorious to me than anything that this world has to offer, and I will not give that up for this. I know where the price tags are. I know what's valuable. I know what's not valuable. And the world will say that the things that are worthless are the things that are most valuable. But by God's grace, we see through it because we have the eyes of Christ. When a child willingly, children, listen to me again. When children, thank you very much for your attention, I see that. When you as a child in your home, choose to obey your parents even when you don't want to. You say, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. Just because the Bible says that you should. Or when, or when you pray, Lord, thank you for my oatmeal, even though I would prefer Fruit Loops, I praise you, 
Thank you for my provision for today. Of course, I think if you said that, your mother would fall on the floor with a heart attack right then. But you give glory to God. Whenever we deny ourselves the pleasure of sin in a moment of temptation, we proclaim the excellencies of Christ, even if the only one who sees is Christ himself. And so we exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, but secondly, notice the occasion for proclaiming his excellency. When should we do it? Answer, in all things. We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things. You see, the attitude of a Christian heart is supposed to be governed by the truth of God's written word. And one of the fundamental truths of Scripture is that the reality that God is absolutely sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over all things. I cannot wait till next week to tell you about George Mueller and see how the word of God was played out in this man's life. And there he was, trusting completely in the sovereignty of God. God, you promised you would feed the orphans. And here we are, it's breakfast time, and there's no food. And so what do you do? You know what he would do? God made a promise. His promises are always true. He will not fail. He sets the children down. Let's thank the Lord for our food. And there's a knock at the door. Brother Mueller, I had more bread than I intended to have today. I thought I'd bring it by for the children. It's amazing. Amazing. God is sovereign over all things. Romans 8.28 is such a key scripture for this. We know, Paul says, that God calls his what? Say it with me. All things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. And what is his purpose? That we would proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things. In all things. It's one thing to proclaim the excellencies of Christ when life is happy and the job's going well and everybody in your family is getting along. But it's quite another thing and a more powerful thing when you are proclaiming the excellencies of Christ when life is falling apart around you. So no matter what our circumstances, no matter what the news from the doctor or the outcome of the biopsy, no matter what happens on Wall Street or on our bank accounts, no matter how deep the disappointment or how staggering the betrayal, we can respond in a way that declares Christ is excellent in this moment. And this is essential New Testament teaching. For example, and you know these passages, but just by way of reminder, 1 Thessalonians, easy for me to say, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything, do what? Give thanks. Why? This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It's what God wants you to do. Can we get any clearer than that? What does God want me to do? I want you to give thanks. When? Right now. You don't understand how bad I'm hurting right now. You don't understand what the doctor just said. doesn't matter. God knows right now. Give thanks. 
How, how can I give thanks? Because you know that God loves you with an infinite love. You know that he has called you out of darkness into his glorious light. You know that he has made you a people for his own possession, a part of the royal priesthood so that you would declare the excellencies of Christ. So declare it in all things. Ephesians 5.20, Paul says, in addition, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. For all things? Let me encourage you, brothers. Next Saturday, breakfast next Saturday? Next Saturday, you need to come. My brother Doug Helms is going to be here to speak. And you don't want to miss it. You don't want to miss it. And you women are going, we're going to miss it. (laughs) Not to worry, we're going to record it. If Doug will give us permission to do that and hopefully even make it available on the web, uh, depending on what the family wants to do. But don't tell me that you can't give glory to God if the pain gets this bad. Next week, you're going to see a man and a family, not perfect, sinful, I know, Doug, but who in the midst of the most unimaginable, unexpected tragedy that any parent can think of, um, constantly giving glory to God. I asked him, would you come and talk to us about lessons learned through your circumstances with your son, Peter? Um, Or would you come and tell us um, a biblical view of suffering? And he said, I've been hoping to get the opportunity to do that. Peter's brother is here with us today, by the way. We pray for Peter every Sunday, and we'll continue to do so. You don't want to miss this. You don't want to miss it. Because we can give thanks for all things. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. Philippians 4, Philippians 2, 14 through 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God. Above reproach, above reproach. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, you see that? The implication is, it is this generation that is crooked and perverse. You, however, are part of a holy priesthood. Live like it. Live like it. Understand that you are like a door facing east on the front of the temple, and God expects that the glorious sun of his blazing glory would reflect off of you for the world to see, and that through your holy life of integrity, wherever you are, whatever God has called you to. I've told my sons, both of them, I don't expect you to become a pastor. Don't do that because... I've done it. And believe me, I didn't do this. God did this. I was the last person to agree to it. But don't become a pastor just because your dad did. God needs a thousand faithful businessmen to every one pastor. 
And so be faithful wherever you are, and you will be a blazing light. And I see some of you men here, and I know you, and I've heard stories about what's happened on the job in your cases, and I, I wish I could have you come up here and give testimony to what happens when godly men take a stand on the job to be holy and blameless and beyond reproach and the effect that has on the world around them. Praise God for you. Peter finally says, 1 Peter 4, 11, whoever speaks is to do it, he's speaking of spiritual gifts here, is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Implication, the glory is his. Once we get thinking it's about my glory, then we will do everything in our power to elevate self. That's not why we exist. We exist to keep, as John the Baptist would say, he must increase, I must decrease. And the world looks at that and goes, I don't understand. I like what I see, but I think you're crazy. See, I'm not crazy. I just know why God created me. And it's not to make much of me. And it's not to fulfill every desire of my flesh. It is to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things. And so we exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things. Now, what's the goal? What do we hope to accomplish by being people who are known as those who view every circumstance in life as a means of proclaiming Christ's excellencies? Every temptation... It's a call to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Every tragedy, every difficulty, every decision, it's a call to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. But what is the goal? The goal is twofold. First of all, we do it simply to glorify God. And so we've written in the statement that we exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God to the glory of God. In other words, we're doing this because we, we understand that God is moving us in a specific direction to achieve a very specific goal. That is, that God would be glorified in us. This is the chief end of man. And when the Westminster Council met together and were wrestling with these fundamental theological issues, they came up with this question in their catechism, what is the chief end of man? And their answer was, the chief end of man is to, two things, glorify God and enjoy him forever. I love that. I love that. Because you know what the secret is to overcoming temptation in your life? It is disciplining yourself to pursue your enjoyment in God to such a degree that the temptation of sin loses its power. That's how you overcome sin. That's how it's overcome. But too often we lose sight of our purpose. We think the chief end of man is to make a name for himself or to find much comfort, as much comfort and pleasure in this life as possible. But God created us that his glory might be manifest in us. 
And this is why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, that he always made it his ambition, whether at home or absent, that's heaven, whether he's living on earth or living in heaven, to be pleasing to the Lord, which is just another way of saying to glorify Christ. It's also why he exhorted in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that whether you eat or whether you drink, Think breakfast, think orange juice and Fruit Loops. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Even the little things, even the little things. Even the little things. Then again, the big things matter as well. In the really big picture of history, And what we see is that in the last days, everyone will declare the excellencies of Christ. We have a choice now as to whether we will do it for the glory of God and our own joy, or whether in the end we will do it against our will. The Philippians 2, 9 through 11 makes that clear. He says, and I'm jumping into the middle of the context here, that God highly exalted him, that's Christ, and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, so that, here's purpose statement again, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. To the glory of the Father. You see direction again? To the glory of the Father. And let me just take you to a text that, after I was going over this message, I was reading just in my personal time in the Word, Revelation chapter 5. And turn with me there for just a minute. Because here in Philippians, Paul is talking about that future day. It is to come, and it will happen. Now the Apostle John in Revelation is saying, and God has given me a glimpse of what that's going to look like. Let me tell you about it. I usually read four to five chapters a day, when I'm reading the scriptures, just for my personal time in the Word. I I, I don't know how many times I read this chapter over and over and over again. It's such a gloriously Christological passage, elevating Christ. This is the ultimate human glorification, magnification of the glory of Christ. And this is what he says, John speaking, and, and again, we don't have time, but I'm jumping in the middle of context. And in verse 11, this is Revelation 5, verse 11. And then I looked, and I heard. Now, what do you think he's going to hear? I want you to put on your sanctified imagination cap for a second. And I want you to imagine, because John wants you to imagine, what it is that he saw. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels. How many is many? He's going to tell us in a minute. Many angels around the throne and the living creatures, of which he has already told us in this context there are four, and the elders, which we know there are 12 or 24, 12 of each, And the number of them was, and here we go, 
myriad of myriads and thousands of thousands. And they were all saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and forever. And the four living creatures kept saying, amen, 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 amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. And what worship is, saying, yes, God, you are worthy. 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 And the question we need to ask ourselves to keep ourselves on course is this. Am I living a life that is worthy of the Lord? Am I living a life that proclaims the excellencies of Christ in every circumstance to the glory of God? So we see why our statement says that. It's simply because we want to ensure that everything we do has a God-word focus rather than a man-word focus. That it's focused on God, not self. God, not people. And even our evangelism is for God. And even our ministry to the poor is for God. As we'll see next week, even Mueller's ministry to the orphans was for God. And that Godward focus will propel us beyond our little comfort zones and into the world if we will only submit to his word and his spirit. And that brings us to the last phrase of the statement and the second ultimate goal. The first is to glorify God, but there is a means by which we will glorify God prominently. And it is the last statement. In the joy of all peoples. Now, some of you children are thinking right now, Pastor Dan, you just misspoke. What is a peoples? It's people. Okay. I remember thinking that when I was in junior high. Um, We actually had an argument with uh, one of our teachers in in school in New Jersey, and I learned about peoples. I had no idea what this would mean for me as a pastor back then when I was a pagan junior higher. Peoples, and I don't, want, I don't know why, I can still see this man's face. He was an African-American teacher. I don't remember his name, but he taught us what peoples means. And it's this. You look around, you see this group. This is a group of people. We're individual people, and together we are a group of people. That's not what, what John is, who is this? It's not what John is talking about. It's not what Peter is talking about. Whoever's talking here. 